3: And that's good news for anyone that is confused by men, which is basically everyone. It's real talk straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably a bit scary at times because we're literally going inside the minds of men. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Make sure to check out Drink Champs, your number one music podcast on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Host N.O.R.E. and DJ EFN sat down with artist and icon Ye, which Vulture called one of 2021's most significant interviews.
5: I literally had to go like Thanos and I don't want to have to be the villain. But when I went and did the Donda thing, Ye returned yeah. and everybody had to sit back and watch the real leader.
0: Check out Drink Champs Conversation with Ye and many more legendary artists each and every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
6: I'm Colleen Witt.
7: As the sun began to tuck away for winter, so did many Portlanders who'd spent the summer out protesting. As the days grew shorter, a shrunken but dedicated group of activists continued to pound the streets in their call for justice— The early days of the protests had been fueled, in part, by the massive lockdown and the layoffs that came with it. As the pandemic wore on, economic collapse contributed to street activism in new ways. Portland has been in a housing state of emergency since 2015, as it was declared by former Mayor Charlie Hales and extended by his successors in the city council again in 2019 for two more years. For a long time, thousands of Portlanders had lived one paycheck away from homelessness. And in 2020, thousands more found themselves on the edge of a cliff. To stave off disaster, a pandemic eviction moratorium was adopted by local lawmakers. It included no forgiveness or grace period for missed rent. This meant that, while you wouldn't get kicked out of your home for missing rent, all that unpaid rent still stacked up. At the time of recording, 89,000 households in Oregon are subject to eviction when the state's moratorium expires, owing more than $378 million in collective back rent. Now evicting all of those people would cost the state three billion billion, eight eight times more than the total back rent owed. Near the end of 2020, the whole situation wound up coming to a head in the battle over a single property, the Red House on North Mississippi Avenue. Coming up next is Elaine.
8: Portland has spent the last decade basking in its image as a liberal playground of bird stickers and locavore foodies. However, this hides the concerted destruction by developers and city planners of Portland's Black community in the Albina District during that same time. The area was redlined for blacks, with local government working in concert with real estate agents and banks to guarantee black people virtually had no options to live outside the neighborhood. Following the Vanport floods of 1948, local lawmakers and real estate interests coordinated to ensure that thousands of black individuals and families suddenly without a home could look nowhere else but a small section of inner north and northeast Portland if they were to live within city limits. The mostly European immigrant populated neighborhood flipped almost overnight with many other residents quickly fleeing the area to avoid living near Black people. Shortly after the flood, close to 70% of the state's Black population lived in the Albina district. Consequently, the neighborhood has been the nucleus to much of the city's Black community for generations. The Portland Police Bureau conducted years of targeted harassment aimed at the Albina community. Years of blight, systemic disinvestment, and policing have led to a mass exodus of blacks from the Central Albina Corps. Many left to the fringes of the city in search of lower rents as north-northeast Portland suddenly became prime real estate. Quickly, the place so many called home was eroding before their eyes. Here are the Snack Mamas on the gentrification of Albina and some history of north-northeast Portland
9: yeah it's hard to here. see how it's, North Portland is turned like yeah, I said it's, yeah. it's really hard to watch the change sometimes I get really angry I'm on his here and it's hard it really um, is fucking hard it's, it's hard to watch it's upsetting but everything looks all nice and fancy but nobody knows how it got that way mm-hmm. Emanuel Hospital give me a fucking break you know what I mean like it, yeah it's nice to have a hospital there it really is I mean but you could have clear the fucking freeway and stuck it right there i mean get Motor center out of there and put a hospital right there like i don't even remember what was there before Motor center was but i'm sure well, probably a shitload of homes you know and it used to be you know, know the rose yeah. quarter they changed There's that a without telling area down there, Like, <laughs> figure it out you know what i mean but you're tearing families out of mm-hmm. homes who live there for that was like my my son's grandmother <laughs> she lived on 33rd and prescott right there on the corner She's like in her late 90s. Yeah. They came in and pretty much stole that house from up underneath her. And yeah, and they're always the, the blocks with all in, the, you know. Moved into like a, a hotel, like apartment thing and died shortly after that. And it's like, it's, it's upsetting when I drive by and see it. And I'm like, God damn, I don't drive my car through that house. You know, but it's, it's upsetting the way they do things and the way they, you know, rehome people and, you know.
8: The wounds run deep. In the last decade, homeownership for Black Portlanders has fallen, not risen. Perhaps more striking is their representation in the houseless population. About 7.2% of Multnomah County's population is Black, but according to their most recent point-in-time count, which was released in pre-COVID times, it showed that Black Portlanders accounted for more than 16% of the houseless in the area. A policy, adopted by the City of Portland designed to give residents with historic ties to inner north and northeast, helps illustrate how deep the need is. The policy gives first dibs at select new apartments being developed by the Housing Bureau, assists existing homeowners in the area with maintenance, and fosters homeownership opportunities. When applications for the first round of units opened up in 2015, thousands applied to live in the handful of units. More complexes have been built since, and dozens more serve for the home repair and ownership opportunities, but every time applications open, the systems are flooded with people just hoping to make the wait list. However, for people that qualify, some feel like the program does not go far enough to remediate the damage that was done to the community. The Snack Mamas continue why even that program has problems since it limits the ownership rights of the family that it helps to return.
9: Yeah, I, I entered into this program for um, the Multnomah County did um, for people who lived in North Portland and were kind of pushed out.
8: Mm-hmm. So
9: I entered that program. I'm just like, this is fucking complete bullshit. You're asking people who have been kicked out of their homes because you guys have great fucking credit to get into this program and to. Um, be able to buy a home on their own shit but yet you own the land they can own the home like fuck go fuck yourselves what? I don't yeah that's what it is they own the fucking part of that program, they own the land bring people
8: back yeah you like can't the, the, the you can't do shit back they, into the neighborhood
9: they own that land you own the home mind you when you they move out hair up there, ask. they get a piece of that this money mom. when you sell your home because they helped you get into there and, you know, yeah. So you can't do any work on the land or, or tear the house down and build new. You can't do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's their fucking land, you know? And you're just owning the home on it.
8: So it's not actually no. helping people get back you know, yeah, no. to the neighborhood. No, any functional no. Way, no, no, no. It nope. absolutely isn't. And That's no. how they it's like to make a, it look. Pro-
9: yeah, yeah and, so, and so, like, you have choices between um, all these little houses or, or, or little buildings or townhomes or whatever. Like, there was nothing that was over, like, Three, two bedrooms I think two or three bedrooms on any of those lists because I've got a family of five you know and I'm just like fuck like none of this shit's here for me like what's what's the deal can I build on it no you can't build anything else on it what the fuck you know finding out that that's their property you just own the building for that point being you know and and um yeah I'm just like but all these properties are certain properties you know because it's just what they own that you get to live on (laughs) yeah (laughs) basically and i'm just like this is fucking bullshit dude you know i never made it to my second appointment i was like fuck out of here
8: local activist regina rage also spoke on the ongoing gentrification in portland in specific relation to a certain red painted house on mississippi avenue that was owned by the same black family for more than 50 years that house would become one of the main focal points in portland protests
11: We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up.
0: Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen.
11: I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything.
0: Listen to cold blooded the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: I started talking about this incident.
1: Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Located in
12: a neighborhood in Portland that was previously an all-black neighborhood and is at the very moment being gentrified and developed and, um, Black families are being forced out into East Portland and Southeast Portland because of this gentrification. And so like for me specifically, um, I like remember the lot that we're all occupying and it's been empty my entire life. And now, because of this protest, they want to develop it into something else. They're going to donate it, and then they're going to put high-rise on top of it, condos, you know? Um, The neighborhood looks vastly different from when I was growing up. I don't recognize it. Sometimes I'm driving, and I just really don't recognize it. And um, that's what makes it important to this community, is this is one of the last Black families in this neighborhood, and they are doing everything they can to remain in this neighborhood. And previously, they were um, displaced from Vanport as well, another neighborhood in Portland that was destroyed. Um, and all of it is tied to white supremacy and what we're fighting against.
5: We crooked.
6: I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke Podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia, Kidding, and Asia.
7: This is the professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm gonna break down
13: my meal that got me through a time when I was broke.
6: Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
14: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes
6: are still hanging on
14: people's walls, you know, they don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
0: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake.
15: Um...
0: Listen to Art Fraud starting February 1st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: Hi, I'm Robert Lamb.
5: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're the hosts of the science podcast Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where every week we get to explore some of the weirdest questions in the universe.
7: Like, if sci-fi teleportation was possible, how would it square with the multitudes of organisms that inhabit our human bodies?
5: Can we find evidence of emotions in animals like bees, ants,
7: and crayfish? How would an interplanetary civilization function? Does free will exist? Stuff to Blow Your Mind examines neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries evolutionary marvels and the wonders of techno history basically this show is the altar where we worship the weirdness of reality if anybody ever told you you ask
5: the weirdest questions it is time to come join us in the place where you belong the stuff to blow your mind podcast
7: new episodes publish every tuesday and thursday with bonus episodes on saturdays
5: listen to stuff to blow your mind on the iHeartRadio app apple
7: podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts here's donovan smith
13: the red house on mississippi has belonged to the kenney family for over 65 years william and pauline Kinney sold their house to their son william jr and his wife in 1995 their financial dominoes began when the owner's son got into a car accident on a suspended license as a teen in 2002 the driver of the car died The passenger was injured, and William III was ultimately convicted of a felony. To cover legal fees, the Kinney family took out a balloon loan against the house. The son, William X. Nietzsche, was sentenced to five years, first in juvenile detention before being transitioned to the state prison at 18. Over time, due to interest and expenses piling up, as well as inadequate legal representation, the Kinney family home, now one of the last black-owned homes on North Mississippi, ended up in foreclosure. Because the foreclosure process started prior to the pandemic, in September, a judge ruled that the eviction of the Kinney's could proceed despite the eviction moratorium. That month, the Multnomah County Sheriff stormed into the red house with rifles and evicted four members of the family. After the initial eviction, some Portlanders began gathering around the red house to support the Kennys. They decried the forced eviction, especially amidst economic crisis and a pandemic. Some even camped outside the property. And then on December 5th, the Portland Police Bureau and County Sheriff's arrived yet again to clear out residents, campers, and render the home on Mississippi Avenue uninhabited. Elisa Azar, an independent Portland journalist, was on the ground when the tide turned against the police eviction team.
4: Red House, wow, where to begin? Um, you know, Red House is is like just such a wild story in so many ways. Um, that morning... Oh my god! It was like not even nine thirty in the morning, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" Like everyone just went like full Paris on PPP. <laughs> it was not even ten o'clock in the morning. I was like, "What am I witnessing right now? This is wild." But I think that's fucking huge because, you know, for almost two hundred days we've seen people we've, you know, we've seen activists and protesters play nothing but defense. And even the defense is very like, it's usually very childish and comical, you know, which is what's so fucking powerful. You know, you, they throw bouncy balls and water balloons filled with glitter at the cops and the cops' reaction. is just like, you know, it's, it's absurd. Um, So seeing that kind, and even, even the morning of Red House, that was still defense, but it was a different kind of defense. It was a hands-on, aggressive, don't fuck with us kind of defense. And the, you know, it's the first time I've seen anything like that. Um, and the fact that it was done, uh, for that reason, I think also just goes to show like... What the community is about. Um, Seeing people care that much was incredible. Um, There were people literally fighting the cops. And I think this is one of the few, (laughs) like literally fighting the cops um, to defend a family that was, you know, they were trying to force out of their home. And um, I think. You know, in general, Red House, but, like, even, like, leading up to Red House, there's been, um, I think there's been a lot more, like, attention and a lot more, like, care and focus on houselessness.
13: Activist Regina Rage also witnessed the December raid.
12: I was there at 5. They called me at 4.45, and I got there right after. In the morning? Yes, in the morning. Um, initially it was just me there Um, and then I think by the time daylight hit and Koya was there there was maybe like 50 people all like crunched in like this one tiny side yard that the only place we were allowed to be at and um, at that point I noticed that white people were allowed to stand in that alleyway, and I wasn't. Every time I stepped in the alleyway, they the police charged at me and threatened to arrest me. And um, I started yelling about how like they were blatantly allowing these white people to walk back and forth in this alleyway, but I wasn't and other people started yelling and then soon we were all just standing in the street and the police were rushing us um at one point they maced us all and um forced us all back onto the side yard and then we rushed again a couple people got arrested and they at one point decided to pull back and the sheriffs left first and As they started to lead, I started running down the hill towards the cop cars and um, everybody else followed and it escalated from there.
13: Under a hail of water bottles, rocks, paint balloons and other random projectiles, police retreated from the area. The cops initially arrived around 5 a.m. and were completely gone by 10.30. In the five hours they were present, at least seven people were arrested. In the Hasty Retreat, several police cars were damaged, some by projectiles, and one due to an officer crashing his own cruiser into another car. Regina describes what happened next.
12: Um, The police finally left, Um, were chased off, whatever. Um, And we just took down the fence and started building them immediately. Um, Yeah, the police had destroyed all of what we had built at red house it was like a weatherproof um living space for those individuals who were staying there as well as like an event space it was like very 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 nice and um they destroyed it and um so we took basically all of the broken materials that they created for us and used those to build barricades and um, when the barricades were up, we, um, we organized watch and um, began calling for supplies to be
2: brought in. Like what happened, I do want to add, what happened with that barricade was just like organic, an organic response to being attacked by an enemy who literally does not give a fuck about your life. Like Regina and I are both single mothers, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're out there gassing single moms.
13: Elisa recounts the mood after the cops were pushed out of the area.
4: Everyone was just kind of, like, on edge. Like, it was a huge celebration, but everybody was like, they're coming back, and with force. They just got their asses handed to them. There's absolutely no way they're just going to, you know, they're just going to leave. So everyone everyone was ready, and everyone was waiting. And within minutes, you know, barricades started to go up. Um, but... They weren't, even then, like, they weren't just, like, barricades. Um, Were you at uh, PCAS or any of the, like, the really, really barricaded nights? And, you know, those nights were fucking sick. But a lot of the barricades, like, like they were really cool. And they were, they served their purpose. But Red House, I'm talking, like, reinforced (laughs) barricades and blockades. Like, there were power tools. There was concrete being laid out. Like, you know, anything you could think of. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of that comes from practice and, um, you know, you learn what you do wrong by, you know, testing things out. But I think the biggest change was like it, it was the passion.
13: Hours after the barricades went up, narrowly reelected Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler made a series of tweets decrying the eviction blockade and mischaracterizing the eviction defense as a so-called autonomous zone. He said, quote, I'm authorizing the Portland police to use all lawful means to end the illegal occupation on North Mississippi Avenue and to hold those violating our community laws accountable. There will be no autonomous zone in Portland, end quote. Nervous anticipation loomed over everyone the first night inside the barricades. Behind the multiple layers of reinforced barricades and impromptu call troops, people anxiously waited to see if the police would show up that first night. But slowly morning came and the coast was clear. Over the next few days, the infrastructure grew. Barricades grew more sophisticated. The janky call trots made of screws and garden hoses were replaced with welded rebar. The food donation area turned into a whole kitchen. And more and more tents were put up in the streets around the Red House. But as time went on, and police didn't show, familiar problems arose regarding people acting as security. Here's Regina.
12: And um, I think that white people in this movement often come into it with a white savior complex and take up a lot of space and actually alienate the black people that this movement is about. And that's what happened during the barricade. There were a ton of white cisgendered people running around, um, behaving crazily, um, acting like cops, to be honest.
13: Multiple people, some of them children, were physically assaulted, put in chokeholds, shot at with paintballs, and kicked out of the Red House eviction defense area for not having permission to use paint by large men acting as self-appointed security team. Problems with the protest security occurred in Portland before, the most notable being the truck driver assault, but smaller incidents took place throughout the summer and fall armed men running around in tactical gear trying to intimidate people into obedience and in some cases using physical force has the same fundamental issue people critique police for. The same problem of armed security essentially acting as cop is part of what got a black teenager in Seattle's Capitol Hill Occupy protester or child killed. One phrase spray painted near the red house was kill the cop in your head. Reflecting the protesters' dissatisfaction with this dynamic. When a group of people are attacking children over graffiti, that's basically a a mini police force. Unaccountable armed men in tactical gear. Part of police abolition is confronting policing dynamics found throughout your life. Even at anti-police protests. The kill the cop in your head graffiti at Red House was soon buffed and covered over by fellow activists within the blockade. For most within the barricades, there wasn't much conflict to speak of. The time at the eviction blockade was mostly spent sitting around a campfire and watching over the fortified fences for incoming police. For the neighbors who lived near the Red House, the biggest change was a slight inconvenience to parking. Many locals were very sympathetic to the cause, putting up signs in support of the Kenny's and the Red House, and some even showed support in other ways
12: people were actually very supportive um neighbors were bringing us food and supplies they were coming to hang out with us they were bringing us coffee Um, there were very few individuals in the neighborhood who actually felt threatened by any of us but unfortunately those are the people who got to the media first but i think that if we um were able to talk to everyone who was involved, I think that they would say that they were proud of what we did.
2: Yeah, like the ones who, the few and far between ones who were like against it, were, the, were just very loud, white, privileged people with time on their hands, you know, which oftentimes, as we know, can have the ear of the, the powers that be.
13: Once the barricades went up and the 24-7 lockdown beeped up, media, both locally and nationally, couldn't resist the Red House story. What had been one family's years-long battle in the courts was now suddenly catching the headlines of CNN and TMZ and, yep, even Fox. A local activist named Koya Crespin, who had been working with Regina to organize with the Kennys, launched a GoFundMe. It set out to raise a quarter million dollars for the Kennys as a bargaining chip to get the developer, Roman Ozaruga, to the table. When national media began constantly reporting on the house, donations shot up coming from all corners of the country as sympathetic viewers and readers aimed to stop the Kennys from losing their home. A slight twist came when Oregon Public Broadcasting, or OPB, released an article revealing that the Kenny family, in fact, had a place to stay after the raid. In fact, it was another family member who, yep, owned their own home. The headline read, Family at the Center of the Red House Protests old Second Portland Home, detailing the fact that the home had been kept in the family for generations. This spurred similar headlines locally and nationally.
12: They're trying to say the Kinney family lied about, like, not having anywhere to go. And when I get kicked out, I have gotten kicked out of places that I've been staying at and have had nowhere but my grandmother's house to go. And that's exactly what happened to the Kinney family. The police removed them from their home at gunpoint, and they had nowhere else but their grandma's house to go. So they went to stay there. And the media tried to say that they had a second house, and as if an entire family with multiple generations all has to live in the same house. That is some racist shit. Super racist to say that a Black family has to all live in the same fucking house.
13: OPB ran an apology article shortly thereafter, apologizing for their mischaracterization of the Kenny's plight. Some support had dwindled, but through it all, support for the Red House grew and so did the fundraiser. The GoFundMe raised well over the quarter million dollars needed to secure the house. The developer was ready to approach the bargaining table. With the assistance of the city, Roman and the Kinneys began discussions about transferring ownership back into the hands of the family. This was a mark of celebration for some who had been occupying the house since September. As conversations with Roman trucked on, the city, after days of threatening police force against the house, promised the Bureau would back off if barricades came down. The Kinneys obliged to the dismay of some activists, many white, who wanted to flex the strength of the people. But for Regina, she says the occupation was never about the walls.
12: There were a lot of people who we didn't even know who had never been to the Red House who had opinions on what we should have done and like who we are now um, because we didn't keep those barricades up. Um, but it was never about the barricades. It, it was, It is and will always be about what is best for the Kinney family and what they want. And um, we did lose like, support slowly and slowly after the barricades um, came down. People stopped coming and um, there are individuals living at the um, red house right now who still need support from this community and are not getting it because the cops aren't an imminent threat anymore.
13: At the moment, it does seem the eviction blockade was successful in applying enough pressure to open up options for the Kennys to keep their home. Holding down a few blocks of a neighborhood while raising hundreds of thousands of dollars may not be a perfectly replicable strategy, but it does show the type of things that can happen when community comes together to stand up against a perceived injustice. Here's Koy on the potential impact of the Red House story in the future.
2: And I hope it happens all around the country. And I hope people are inspired by it and that they go seeking out evictions to do the shit with and to lift up this work.
12: Um, this isn't, like, the first ever time a neighborhood has risen up to defend an eviction. This would happen even as far back as the 30s. Communities would come together to fight, um, the police when they came to drag people out of their homes.
2: Right. I think, like, we've all seen, Have I don't know, we've probably all seen that pic of, like, it's from, like, the 30s, like, Rage referenced. Where it's like neighborhood men, and they're all white, like on top of a sheriff, stopping them from evicting a widow,
13: you know, like. A handful of people continue to occupy the Red House. Negotiations have continued since December, but all parties have been pretty tight-lipped about the status of the talks up until now. Red House has not marked the end of protests in Portland. More than anything, it's galvanized a large amount of mutual aid directed around evictions and houselessness. During the same period as Red House activists keeping multi-week watch over a houseless encampment at a local park that was under threat of sweep by the city. As winter is set in, the mayor has worked to roll back eviction protections as well as protections against camp suites. Facing freezing temperatures and a mounting pandemic, activists have mobilized to get gear and supplies as well as helping with defense work to prevent more evictions and displacement. Activists argue that sweeps and evictions are unconscionable during a pandemic and that money funding the evictions could be used to make sure that people are housed. Demetria Hester speaks about the continuing mutual aid. No,
10: I am. I, it hasn't surprised me because um, our community knows it's a need. They know it's a need, so they're starting all these groups so that, that we can help the need in our community i mean people are still getting evicted they're still not being able to pay their bills they're still not getting food uh from our government so we have to depend on each other to give us what we need you know to be successful to keep going on because I don't see a future of our government giving us or doing anything to help us, so we still have to continue this fight. Plus, we're pushing it to the to the White House. I was there when um, when Biden won. We marched. I marched with the Black Panthers to the White House, saying two, four, six, eight. Tell the tell the world who we hate: the Republicans, the Democrats, the whole damn bunch.
13: Another ongoing movement that has gained renewed interest since the summer protests is the Patrick Kimmon marches that happen twice a week. Letha Winston has been marching the streets of Portland at times alone in the search for justice for her son, Patrick Kimmons. For years, Letha has pleaded for local officials to reopen his case after he was shot and killed by Portland police in late 2018. The calls were met with little action. That was until the George Floyd uprisings. These protests have gave rise to an amended version of the slogan, black lives matter, with many beginning to proclaim that all black lives matter. While this phrase was created in part to give more visibility to black LGBTQ people who are experiencing some of the worst harms in the community, it also grew to buck at the idea that those worth honoring or remembering need to somehow be perfect victims. Black and unarmed with no criminal background, when news of Kimen's case broke, details were scanned. He'd gotten into a confrontation with two men, shooting and wounding both of them. Police showed up shortly thereafter, and he was shot and killed. It was later revealed by the autopsy that of the 12 bullets police fired at 27-year-old Kimen, nine entered his body. It also showed that some of those shots had gone through his back. After a judge ruled that there was no wrongdoing by the police, the Bureau released footage of the early morning standoff. Organizer Jedi Levy explains the scene here
5: basically like there was like a, a, a minor like argument or scuffle or whatever and Patrick started running and um he didn't know that he was running towards the police but he was running towards the police and then went to turn into like in between some cars and the cops started shooting him and all the shots went into his back so um yeah they shot him in the back and killed him and uh the cops were not charged. It was basically rule justifiable homicide. And um, it wasn't, though, because they shot him in his back. So,
13: During the trial, the rookie cop who fired the fatal shots described himself as doing what he was taught to neutralize the threat. It was enough to vindicate him in the courts, but not in the eyes of Letha. She's been leading regular marches throughout the city since 2018. Sometimes with a, a crowd, other times just alone with a megaphone demanding for the case to be reopened. Once the Portland protests began, her fight gained new light. Organizers like Jedi have helped grow the fleet of protesters marching alongside Kim and his mother. He talks about his involvement in the marches here.
5: She did it for well over a year with virtually no help um, Except for one person named Jay, and he still comes to this very day. Like, he's the only person that actually stuck with her throughout this entire time. But, um, so she's basically just trying to spread awareness and, like, talk to Ted Wheeler.
13: It worked. An emotional face to face between her and the mayor was finally scheduled.
5: Ted Wheeler was super sad and was like, I can't believe I haven't done more about this. I'm really, really sorry. He's told her that she's, like, the strongest speaker like one of the strongest speakers she's he's ever seen and he was brought to tears this nigga was literally crying in the mayor's office um so that was great and what she's trying to what basically we're, we're just continuing to put the pressure on uh the police officers when we go out and um really we just want this the next meeting to to come up because the next meeting they're going to sit down and actually review the tapes together, so um, that is what is being done right now, um, and just keeping our fingers crossed that it happens sooner sooner than later.
13: Still, the case hasn't been reopened. Letha continues to march around the city demanding justice for her son, affectionately known as Pat Pat. The marches have continued with increased numbers through all of fall and into winter. During the autumn, faced with increased attacks from far-right extremists who would attack leaders' marches with signs and flags declaring that they backed the blue, organizers and activists began using the slogan, Back the Black, for their weekly protests. The continued hate and aggression that these peaceful marches have seen reflected the growing vitriol that was coming from the far-right as we moved into the election. And finally, the January violence that rocked the nation. In Washington, D.C., on January 6, thousands of Trump supporters rushed the Capitol building in a last ditch attempt to stop the certification of the presidential election results. The violent attempt to take over forced Congress to evacuate and left five dead, including two police officers, and drew the ties between law enforcement, Republican congresspeople, and far right militants to the forefront of national awareness. In December, a Stop the Steal rally in Salem, Oregon had similarly breached the state capitol, though the group hadn't reached the chambers of legislature. CCTV footage later showed that the breach in Salem began with a Republican legislator opening the doors to admit the mob. On the 6th of January, a small far-right group assembled again and clashed with left-wing demonstrators. The group again included both mainstream Republican politicians and extremist figures including one of the white supremacists convicted in the 1988 murder of Ethiopian grad student Moulighetta Sarah in Portland. Compared to the nation's capital, the Salem rally was limited. No major breaches of the capital in Salem occurred. By 3 p.m., the crowd had dispersed. Despite the shakeup, Biden assumed office just over a week later. On his first day in office, Biden signed an executive order halting ICE deportations for 100 days as the administration attempted to overhaul many of Trump's deportation policies. That same day, protesters in Portland gathered at the local ICE headquarters. They didn't want a temporary end to deportations. They wanted a complete disbanding of the 9-11 era agency, who split up scores of families, held small children in cages, and acted in strong concert with the FBI since its inception. This night ended with six arrests and without the sting of tear gas. Days later, another was a different story as feds and riot gear met protesters with cuffs, force, and closet gas. The headquarters had, however, become a fixture in the protest with federal agents regularly deploying CS gas against them. But situated next to the facility was the school. K-8 Public Charter, Cottonwood School of Civics and Science. The school regularly was engulfed in tear gas. Dr. Juniper Siminus immediately sprung into action collecting soil samples across the school campus, including its playground, to assess its impacts. While that research continues, Cottonwood didn't wait for their answer. They wanted an immediate end to the use of tear gas by federal agents. Now, the... The agency hasn't issued any formal response, but it's almost certain that activists will continue returning to the building and call for an end to ICE as weeks roll on. With four years of Biden and Harris at the helm, their election was a welcome reprieve from Trump's heavy-handed brand of racist politics, but not an end to the fight against systems of repression. The simultaneous re-election of Mayor Ted Wheeler was a mark of dread for many who had been on the ground. He eked out a win, earning more votes than on-ballot challenger Sarah Iannarone. But less than her in total write-ins, many which are presumed to have went to Don't Shoot Portland founder Teresa Rayford, who community members launched a write-in campaign for after the longtime BLM leader lost her bid for Portland's top seat in the primaries. The results revealed a divide even in Portland politics. Despite the split, it also marked the most racially, gender, and sexually diverse council in the city's history. The new council assumed office this January. Negotiations began between the city and police union that same month. And this time, for the first time ever, the public got a glimpse behind the curtain. After months of protests that put their bureau on headlines across the world, all eyes were on these powerful vanguards of the profession. In the negotiations, tensions remained high as union heads railed against new measures of oversight, discipline, and limits on overtime expenditures. While the bureau had said they want racial and social justice changes in the police force, many of the proposed changes have been met with critique and resistance. Their current contract with the city expires June 30th this year. As negotiations continue, it remains to be seen what changes will come between the Bureau and the city. The past year has been marked by a number of police-involved violence, despite the growing calls for justice. In Vancouver, Washington, a bridge away from Portland, two young black men, Kevin Peterson Jr. and Genoa Davis, have been killed by officers within just a couple months of each other. In the college town of Eugene, Oregon, Mousheen Sharif was shot after police responded to an alleged domestic violence report. Sharif did survive. Meanwhile, amidst the backdrop of the pandemic, the streets of Portland are seeing 30-year highs in gun violence. Economic downturn is leaving the city on edge. White supremacists of all stripes have been emboldened, while cries for justice for black lives have reached feverish new highs. The international cameras are gone now. Protests continue, but in markedly smaller numbers. That nine-minute fuse of George Floyd's murder had lit a fire under the country. What surfaced was a renewed urgency to transform a system that has devalued Black lives not as an exception, but a fundamental tool and tradition of the society. As the streets have quieted, the urgency for change still remains for those that have been a part of these uprisings. As the resistance begins to take a new face, the question remains, what's next?
15: I don't think it's going to... I don't think people are just going to get tired and go away. This is, like, people have had enough of this police brutality and and the racism that, you know, influences police brutality. I don't see it going away. I mean, I see it ebbing and flowing. Like, you, you know, just, it's almost natural for any energy to do that. So we go, you know, we go up with big turnouts and go down with low turnouts or up with really good morale and then, you know, down in the dumps later. It's just, so I think it's going to keep following that some kind of ebb and flow of change, but I don't think it's going to go away. I don't see how it could go away when the police are continuing to kill unarmed black people. Yeah. They're they're continuing to do it. I think it's really telling that, as far as I know, not one single Portland police officer has been um, discipline for their actions, and they have done some extremely terrible things that should be disciplined, things that go against their training, things that go against their own policies and procedures, and these things are caught on video, so there is no excuse at all for why they have not been disciplined.
14: People just, like, become, I don't know, the, the changes become the normative, if that makes sense. Like, the way it gets pushed out into... The big sea of water, big sea of sea, and and that's what it is, you know. I think, like, I, I look at Ferguson, uh, so that movement, you know, kind of faded away or whatever. This but I guess election that just happened, I is- can't. Yeah, but yeah, in this past election, they just elected one of the activists from there to Congress, so that's like though the movement like faded away. That's like last the people there were radicalized to do these things. So it's like, though the movement that's tied to the summer of 2020 may fade away, it's like, unless they're going to, you know, remove everybody and all of our experiences, all of our renewed perspectives on life, then you can't really like
7: destroy movement and all. It's natural. I think the, it's interesting, there's like,
1: Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to crime stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: Two different the morale of the city as a whole is very like in limbo, I feel like, oftentimes, but because it's like ultimately people who are protesting are ultimately doing it for the right, right reasons. And we get like little glimmers of like hope, but then like just today I learned of three black people that were killed in the last week throughout the United States by police unarmed. So, and then you hear shit like that. And then it, it just makes you wonder like, why are we even continuing to do this? Shit? Like why even keep fighting? This just keeps happening. But I think that um, right now we live in this, I feel like right now we live in this time of questions where we have a lot of questions without answers, but there are years that ask questions and there are years that answer them. I don't think we're in an, in a year right now where we're going to get a lot of answers and that's okay. I feel like we need to be okay with like sitting in the questions and going through like the mud and going through the puddle, so to speak in order to get to where we want to go. It's going to take time because the system is taken years to, um, to build into what it is right now. And so it's just going to take time. So I think the morale of the city limbos because you have a bunch of, you know, the, the, the white neoliberals who just want to go back to normal, but normal was killing us. So we're not going to do that. And then you have our side, which is like, we're feeling we're getting pulled in all kinds of directions. We're feeling inspiration and then we're feeling discouragement because we keep seeing the same shit happen. But ultimately, um, mutual aid really is the way of the future. And I think that these mutual aid groups and networks that we're forming right now are really the genesis of what it's going to look like for humanity to live in a world without dependence on the state and without needing or feeling like we the police are going to keep us safe when they've proven so many times that we don't. Um. So I personally am excited about the future because I'm witnessing like the, uh, yeah, really just the genesis of what of the world that I would like to live in. Um, but obviously, you know, it's the whole two steps forward, one step back thing that we, that we have to deal with as well. So I'm looking forward to how things are going. I'm just hoping that more people can really open their eyes to, um how they're how being complicit to the system is literally murdering people that look like me and Donovan, and that we need to stop it there's too many people who are still sleeping um that's a big reason why I think we were doing that thing at r c j was to wake up this side of this the river like march through the neighborhoods, wake people up, let them know that we're here there's a ton of us and that they need to be on our side because ultimately when when we are free when black people are free everybody's going to be free because black liberation is human liberation at the end of the day so if we can really focus on uplifting our most marginalized and most oppressed communities and we're uplifting everybody at the same time and the quicker that more people really understand that and are inspired enough to actually take action and be a part of the movement um the better just um yeah um, I'm looking forward to things though, personally.
8: We your new year's resolution to be more productive with the before breakfast podcast in
3: each bite sized daily episode time management and productivity expert laura vanderkam
8: teaches you how to make the most of your time both at work and at home these are the practical suggestions you need to get more done with your day just as lifting weights
3: keeps our bodies strong as we age learning new skills is the mental equivalent of pumping iron
8: listen to before breakfast wherever you get your podcasts
3: Executive producer Paris Hilton brings back the hit podcast, How Men Think. And that's good news for anyone that is confused by men, which is basically everyone. Get an inside look at what goes on in the mind of men from the men themselves. It's real talk, straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably a bit scary at times because we're literally going inside the minds of men. As much as we like to think all men are the same... They're actually very different. Each week, a celebrity guest host provides honest advice in his area of expertise. When I agreed to do this reboot, I had a few conditions. No sugarcoating, no mind games, and absolutely no mansplaining. Men are hard enough to understand without the mind games. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
13: This is Roxane Gay, host of the Roxane Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Now, what is the Roxane Gay Agenda, you might ask? Well, it's a podcast where I'm going to speak my mind about what's on my mind, and that could be anything. Every week, I will be in conversation with an interesting person who has something to say. We're going to talk about feminism, race, writing in books and art food, pop culture, and yes, politics. I start each show with a recommendation. Really, I'm just going to share with you a movie or a book or maybe some music or a comedy set, something that I really want you to be aware of and maybe engage with as well. Listen to the Luminary
11: Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, The Bad Feminist Podcast of Your Dreams, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app,
7: The 2020 uprisings were not Portland's first by any means. The city earned the name Little Beirut after protests against the Portland Republican National Convention in 1989. But when the world was gripped with a pandemic that had brought most facets of normal life to a screeching halt, a spotlight was flung on the gaps between what America says it is and the realities its black citizens have experienced for decades. And in the midst of all this, Portland became Little Beirut again, or, as President Trump called it, a beehive of terrorists. To many of those on the ground, the City of Roses seemed to be seeing what might be the beginnings of a beautiful new world, straining to be born. Tragedy warred with hope, and through it all, blood, sweat, and tear gas. A sometimes messy but determined group of activists stood toe-to-toe against some of the deepest cylinders of oppression in the country to make sure the normal that we have all known is replaced. Some lobbied, some voted, some shouted down the mayor. Some started nonprofits, some started wearing block. No matter what people chose, thousands decided to take action. No definitive answers emerged out of the protests, but what did emerge was a reinvigorated sense of urgency for change. The question we're now all left with is this Will we right the historic wrongs of this nation in time to fix things before the clock runs out? Only time will tell.
13: Uh... Word to grandpops who couldn't fathom the Obamas. I don't hate America, just a man she keeps her promises. Twenty-teens looking like the 60s, it's crazy. A nationwide deja vu, what my people post to do. Go to schools named after the clan founder. Word round town is y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about Winno Perra, Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for 'em. But ain't be all a little bit of monster. We crook it,
8: from Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast, The Shadow Girls. I grew up near the banks of the Green River and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name.
11: Prosecutors described him as a serial killer servant.
8: But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer; it's about the victims
10: we stayed in the woods he always liked to go in the woods
8: listen to the shadow girls on the iheart radio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts executive
3: producer paris hilton brings back the hit podcast how men think and that's good news for anyone that is confused by men which is basically everyone. It's real talk straight from the source. The How Men Think podcast is exactly what we need to figure them out. It's going to be fun, informative, and probably a bit scary at times because we're literally going inside the minds of men. Listen to How Men Think on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
13: Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest.
0: Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother
2: was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robey And me, Simone Boyce.